Edie is delighted to be partnering with Lloyds Bank on the journey to creating a more sustainable and inclusive future for people and businesses aligned to a just transition. Lloyds Bank actively seeks out opportunities to support their corporate and institutional clients to finance and deliver a just net zero transition, benefiting companies, communities and the wider economy. To find out more, search Lloyds Bank Just Transition. Lending is subject to status. Hello and welcome along to Sustainability Uncovered. Coming up in today's episode, a Valentine special for February 2024. We ask CFP Green Buildings and Lloyds Bank for their advice on building a long-lasting and impactful green partnership. So from our point of view, it's ambassadors, it's, it's leadership, and it's real commitment to you know, getting the innovation uh, to get this impact. We learn more about Bloom and Wild's quest for more sustainable flowers, even if it means no red roses ultimately also communicate a lot at the product level because we often see that that can be the most evocative message when you talk about a, a TLC kit or when you talk about a lovely leftover bouquet or a organic bouquet. And we warm our cold, cold hearts by answering your FAQs about heat networks and heat pumps. Heat networks currently at about 3% of uh, our UK-wide energy solution and it should be around about 20%. There's also a recap of a whirlwind month of green economy news from the UK, plus details of our biggest in-person event of the year, which is now just a matter of weeks away. All of that and more coming up on today's show. Yes, a warm welcome to Sustainability Uncovered, the show for anyone and everyone working in or passionate about environmental sustainability and climate action. This is a long-standing monthly show from Edie, hosted in partnership with Lloyds Bank. You're listening to the voice of Edie's deputy editor, Sarah George, and I'm joined in the Edie podcast studio in Sussex by our content editor, Matt Mace. Hi, Matt. Hello. Hi, how are you doing? Yeah, not too bad. It's a busy time on the Edie desk. Like We're weeks away from the launch of our business leadership month, and there's an awful lot going on there with our awards, uh, Edie24, uh, roundtables, uh, online events, lots of reports. So it feels like um, everything is just ramping up. Yeah, there's a lot coming up in the future and we've got lots to get through in this podcast on the theme of Valentine's Day. But before we get ahead of ourselves, I wanted to spend a few minutes recapping on the absolute deluge of news that we've covered since our last episode last month. So I saw a tweet the other day that said, Uh, January was an interesting year, recapping on the absolute myriad of news that has been happening worldwide and happenings within the green economy have been no different. So before we get stuck into the meat of the episode, Matt, I understand, has a news and brief section to bring us all up to date on three of this month's biggest stories. And this is usually the part where Luke is here and challenges me to do that in one minute or maybe two if he's feeling generous. I'm going to be even more generous and give you three minutes for three stories. Full disclosure, I'm going to go at my own pace and it'll take as long as it takes. Okay. We can edit it down to make it look like three minutes. That'd be really good. Okay. Uh, <laughs> right. So we'll start the ED news in brief now. So I think the best place to start is obviously uh, in the policy space and with a particular eye on Labour, uh, who have been in the news for um, their U-turn over its £28 billion green investment commitment. Uh, we It's now official that that will be cut by at least more than half, with uh, party leader Keir Starmer confirming that all of Labour's environmental policies are still being actively considered. The £28 billion investment has been in place since 2021. Uh, by then, um, the Shadow Chancellor Rachel Reeves at the Labour Party conference and 
it was very much the flagship um, commitment to ensure that the party isn't shirking their responsibility to future generations. It was very much focused about this green revolution and protecting workers and businesses as well. But yes, um, uh, on 8th of February, uh, Keir Starmer said that because of the Conservatives' mishandling of the economy, and we obviously now, since then, know that we are officially in a recession, uh, the Chancellor's decision to exhaust the uh, nation's credit limit, it would be unfeasible to essentially reach those numbers that they had um, hoped to. So under the new proposal, suspending is going to be about $15 billion in total, uh, and the response has been largely hated, I think it's fair to say, green groups are like, but there's also a survey of more than 2,000 adults uh, conducted by Yonder last week, and more than half of them uh, believe that Labour's decision to ditch that green investment is misguided. Sticking in the policy space, we've also got the biodiversity net gain mandate, which is launched for England, so it's new government rules that all major housing developments in England are required to deliver biodiversity net gain of at least 10%. Uh, that came into effect as part of the Environment Act. Uh, it has been delayed massively. I think it was first floated uh, during the kind of COVID pandemic. But it's estimated by uh, biodiversity startup Joe's Blooms uh, that if the government delivers an ambition on its 300,000 uh, homes each year, the mandate would avoid the loss of 78 uh thousand football pitches uh, of habitat within five years uh, and create an additional 44,000 uh, pitches. Not a clear cut is that though because um, the government is imploring developers to deliver on-site net gain near their sites wherever possible but some developers that don't have that kind of access can essentially purchase credits and it's kind of what this does is kind of weave into that whole kind of offsetting debate which we don't need to tread over new grounds at the moment so yet to be seen whether that will deliver the entire means that it's meant to. And just finally, the EU is currently pressing ahead with its Green Claims Directive. So the European Parliament uh, kind of voted overwhelmingly in favour at the start of the year to implement a new directive that essentially bans businesses from making misleading claims about green products and services. So vague claims like um, the environmental impact of products have to be essentially backed up by data and evidence. So your eco-friendlies, your environmentally friendlies, natural, recycled, biodegradable, all that good stuff you see on the shelves is essentially no longer um, allowed unless it can be backed up. Um, another point of contention, sticking in offsetting, funny enough, is that businesses will be kind of banned from labelling their offerings as climate neutral, carbon neutral, whatever the kind of buzzword of the day is, if they are relying on offsetting. Uh, these changes are set to come into force into 2026, but we have heard this week that penalties for organisations that breach uh, this new directive will be at least 4% of turnover, which is actually quite a substantial amount, as yeah. we were talking about earlier in the uh, in the office era. Like, they're usually quite small um, fines, but that is that has huge ramifications for some businesses. And I'm done. And you're done. You're 52 seconds over time. Uh, but I realised on the label, and I was like, I'm going way too much. Uh, on this particular story so it's easy to do isn't it especially with how much we're seeing on news and on the telly at the moment it's easy to be like I'm a journalist and I'm going to pretend to know everything about everything and our Keir Starmer socks telling yeah. us a message <laughs> about his new green plan um, so totally understand that so that was our news in brief so with all of that behind us it's time for the task of today which is to deliver a Valentine's Day themed episode of Sustainability Uncovered this was, if you haven't guessed, a month where I was given free reign with the theme and decided to run with it entirely and have a bit of fun. Um, so, Matt, what are your views on, on V-Day? Valentine's Day doesn't really appeal to me. Um, I did get a card for my other half and uh, some like uh, 
food and we went out for a meal but it was yeah it's uh very low-key yeah i think a lot of people be in the same boat as you mentioned we are in a recession but i i guess that a lot of sustainability folks are in the same space as well so i was looking up facts about valentine's day and learned that it's been observed for more than 1500 years um, but for a lot of us in the UK, especially cynics and blue hearted people like Matt and myself, it does seem a bit like a cash grab um, and a wasteful occasion more than an ancient tradition. Business Waste estimates that nine million kilograms of extra um, greenhouse gas emissions are produced in the UK due to V-Day waste alone. So that's just the waste. So all of those flowers, all of that food, all of that packaging, those chocolates, those teddy bears. Um, and I didn't want to get bogged down in the bad. This podcast is a chance to look at some more positive case studies and provide best practice learnings on partnerships. I've also set aside some time to look at how businesses can minimise the environmental footprint of popular tokens of affection and learn how we can warm our cold hearts without using fossil fuels. So we'll start with partnerships. I'll go in the order of topics that I've just mentioned. So Matt, we've both been writing about sustainable business news for six plus years and people always talk about collaboration and partnership. But for all these, all this talk, a lot of these partnerships fall apart quicker than a couple in Love Island when their ex gets reintroduced to the villa. So what do you think is a, a vital ingredient for a good sustainable business partnership? It's a good question. And um, it's, this isn't a cop-out answer, but it kind of depends on very much the type of partnership uh, you're after. But I think if you're taking a kind of traditional business um, that wants to partner for good, you're probably looking at kind of NGOs that can provide expertise that you don't have. So if I use the example, I mean, let's let's stick with kind of chocolates, for example. Uh, A global confectionery giant would probably want to partner with a kind of NGO on the ground to really help train the the farmers, and the real small-scale um, organisations down their value chain on sustainable practices that in turn would boost yields for those kind of farmers and uh, and more sustainable crop growth in that sense. So I think knowing what you want out of it from a business perspective, but also what you can leverage to help the other um, organisations so that there are joint benefits. So in that example, you would have... Um, the business kind of providing most of the upfront capital for the training and the NGO is very much there to deliver it. I think partnerships are about sharing the risk so that organisations can take a little bit of a leap of faith and try something that they wouldn't feel competent to do by themselves. So I think clear expectations of and a kind of joint commitment to what they both want to achieve and then understanding of who can provide what and who can and how you can kind of spread that risk I think is key. Yeah, so that all boils down to, I think, like clarity and communication, which is something we can talk about in our first interview of the day, which is all about partnerships. So to get some more top tips on top of those offered by Matt, I spoke with Bram Adema, who is the founder of CFP Green Buildings, and David Willock, who is the MD for Sustainability and ESG Finance at Lloyds Bank. Um, as they put it, the pair were match made in 2019 by ING and have since grown and evolved their partnership to provide building decarbonisation support to more than 500 million square feet of buildings in the UK. So here is that interview with Bram and David in full. So what would a Valentine special of the ED podcast be without a section on 
partnerships. It's a delight to be speaking with our long-standing partners for the series, Lloyds Bank, specifically to their MD for sustainability and ESG finance, David, and someone that I understand he was match made with in, in a really interesting partnership story, um, Bram, who is the founder of CFP Green Buildings. So thank you both so much for, for your time. Um, I'm, I'm going to do my best to try and stop people overlapping here which is always the the uh, the challenge of having multiple podcast guests. But it would be great to get um, quick introductions to both of yourselves. So, David, it'd be great to have a, a reintroduction to yourself um, and a little bit of information about your partnership with 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 Bram. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, it's great to be back. Uh, my name is David Willock. I'm Managing Director, as you said, in Sustainability and ESG Finance. And effectively, what that means is uh, I founded the team in 2021 and we have a team of colleagues who have loads of different uh, backgrounds and we support our clients with sustainability across all the sectors. Prior to that, I was um, head of sustainability in the real estate and housing business. So that's when Bram and I met back in 2019. Um, so so why, did we, why did we meet? Well, Lloyd's is one of the largest lenders to the mortgage sector. It's one of the largest lenders to social housing, house building, real estate. So as you can imagine, because of that materiality, greening the built environment and, and improving uh, the carbon profile of the built environment is one of our core priorities. So as we got into that, bearing in mind we started in 2016 uh, through our green lending initiative, it became evident that these problems are tough uh, and we're going to need to partner with different skills, different types of people and, and different types of capabilities. So enter Bram. Thanks, David. Uh, Abraham Adima, uh, CEO and founder of CFP Green Buildings. Uh, I founded the company 20 years ago in the Netherlands when no one was interested in carbon reduction or energy reduction at all. And, and real estate was mainly driven uh, by maintenance and replacing old stuff with new bad stuff uh, or as bad as the previous old stuff. And, and when I started, uh, we already knew that with maintenance budgets, you could improve buildings uh, with with a financial profit as a result, but we also found that sustainability was free. So over the past 20 years, we've improved 30,000 buildings physically, uh, guaranteeing the business case, or otherwise we wouldn't have had clients. And 10 years ago, uh, we founded a, a digital tool that empowers everyone to make their own sustainable decisions. And I guess this was the, the reason why David and I uh, were matched uh, uh, five years ago. Yeah, it'd be great to hear a little bit more about how the partnership started. I do understand that it was a, a matchmaking scenario, as you say, Brian. Well, uh, we we started in the Netherlands, of course, and uh, ING Bank and, and the other Dutch banks were our first clients. And there was an article in The Guardian that caught the attention of Bank of England, who said, uh, we need to get you over to the UK and, and you have to create the same uh, environment for, for our banks. So Bank of England and ING Bank uh, uh, were the ones who introduced us to, to several banks. But in fact, it was only Lloyds Bank who said, ah, this, is, this could really help us decarbonize our clients. This could help us reduce the risk and help our clients future, future-proof their buildings. Yeah. And I guess from our perspective, it wasn't quite a shotgun wedding, but I, I think it was the right introduction at the right time in that, as I said, we've been doing it uh, since 2016 and, and we felt very pleased to have led the market and we uh, uh, delivered about a billion pound of financing but what we found actually is we were 
transacting with those that were already well on the journey but actually from the client feedback a lot of them just didn't know where to start so the introduction from ing came at a perfect time in terms of actually what our clients needed and what we needed was tools to help more people go faster further um, and the meeting with brown was very um, timely on that and actually it wasn't the primary driver but we were sponsoring the inaugural green finance summit which was coming up in three three or four months i think uh, from that date of introduction and it's always nice when you're doing speeches to unveil something so there's a mix of factors client driver materiality and it's always nice to have an event to drive to to, to focus the mind uh, this is this is definitely uh, a one of the reasons that that we were uh, successful is that we didn't uh, study and research uh, this partnership for two years and got professors to uh, to analyze us further. Uh, we we started the partnership, uh, for example, with uh, with this press release on the uh, green finance uh, uh, day. Uh, but we also started speaking to clients. And David said, I would like to believe what you say is true, and and we understand that it works in the Netherlands. But why would it work here? So rather than discussing our partnership uh we we tried it out in reality and uh, uh I, I don't know how this compares to valentine's day uh but you can imagine something like that but we went out to clients and david said why don't you speak to this client and why don't you show the tool and then we'll see what happens you know i think it comes back to something that you mentioned david you mentioned the need to sort of get this going quickly and go further and faster to test and scale so I understand that an important time in the partnership came in 2020 when the Lloyds Bank Green Buildings tool got made available to all commercial banking clients. Um, so essentially opening the relationship up as as it were. So it'd be great to hear about how the partnership grew and why that point was so important. Yeah, so I think um, not to labour the Valentine's theme, but to indulge a little bit, I, I think effectively what Bram said, the pilot really was like speed dating. You know, ultimately, where I see some of these partnerships and new collaborations win or lose, it has to be client centric. It has to address the needs of clients. Um, but the speed dating was successful and we really tested a range of those that were real exemplars through to people that really weren't anywhere on that journey of decarbonisation. So I think once we'd had that, it was really then about, OK, how do you do that at scale? And and um, there's this tension sometimes in partnerships about exclusivity versus non-exclusivity. And there's an intellectual capital aspect to it and not just a financial capital bit. So we had an exclusivity period. But at that point, we made the tool freely available to every single client of ours in commercial banking. So that ranges from the largest asset owners in, in the world through to a coffee shop owner uh, and not just the owners, but also crucially the tenants. Um, so that was really important, the scale of it, making it free. So it's addressing one more barrier. You know, you think there's so many barriers to decarbonisation and built environment. This was just taking that cost piece away. Um, I think the other bit was um, training our relationship managers as well. So we had a big programme and Brown helped us to train every single relationship manager in, in how to use the tool. Yeah, I think uh, um, both advanced customers and 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 uh, customers that, that are not uh, uh, busy on a daily basis with sustainability, homeowners, um, care and cure, uh, they all have the same three problems. And and I think uh, Lloyd's Banking Group uh, uh, really understood these three problems. Um, the, the first one is that if you don't know the, the complexity of, of uh, or if you think it's really complex to make your buildings more sustainable, then where would you start? 
So uh, uh, the tool really addresses that. It says these are the five measures for your specific building, for your specific hospital or office, and this is where you should start. So very concrete. Then the second one is uh, uh, every building owner, every tenant overstates their sustainability investments with a factor of five to ten. So imagine that you think half of the commercial value of your building should be invested. Well, you might as well tear it down. In, in reality, it's only 5 to 12% for commercial buildings and 7 to 15% for a house. Um, so so the, the magnitude is a lot, lot lower. And the third one is this cost bit. So the tool is offered for free to all of uh, Lloyds Banking Group clients, but um, usually you would have to invite a, a consultant or an engineer to your buildings. It would take four to six weeks to evaluate. You spend a few thousand pounds per, per asset. And what if you had 100 assets or 500 or a few thousand houses? It would be years and it would be millions. So this, this is affecting everyone. And I, I think what, what Lloyd said is scaling up this knowledge, scaling up this, this roadmap of, of how to do it, giving it away to clients for free and even to non-clients and, and saying you can use this. And while you do it, we will help you by trained relationship managers and by giving you expertise uh, in our uh, marketing materials. The, the beginning of, of innovation is always difficult. When, when we uh, introduce a new tool to our clients, uh, the first year, there's only one in five clients who really believe in it. And there's only one in five relationship managers. You have to help them take that year to to get to you get 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 used to the to the newness to the innovation and try it out and look at ambassadors and and I think this 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 was great courage and, and great stamina of of Lloyd's to say we will invest in it and we will push this to our clients and now uh, everyone understands it and everyone uses it. That makes complete sense. I mean, in my job, I'm often asked to write about innovations and people are usually looking for like the sexy text based innovations. But we find that a lot of the time innovation is also about process changes and mindset changes, um, which is what I think you're touching on here, Bram. So it'd be great to get your learnings on how to maximise the impact of a partnership by getting into those processes and mindsets and get, getting people to use sustainable tools like yours. Yeah, so so a big one uh, uh, resulted from these pilot clients. So the pilot clients were were proof of the pudding, but they were they also became the first ambassadors, and and so these pilot clients, uh, for some of them uh, were front runners, and they said, "Oh wow, I wish I would have had this a few years ago. I'll go on stage now and tell all clients that this is really useful uh, because I'm an experienced user." Uh, so having pilot clients who turn into ambassadors is, is great stuff. Then I, I think uh, you also need unconventional leaders. Um, so within a, a big organization, uh, which is a bank or big clients, you need people that uh, believe in the mission, but also they, they also want to go towards that goal without having to discuss it. And they will go through walls sometimes uh, almost literally. Um, and, and finally, I, I think you need a partner um, on both sides that will go, uh, that will do everything that is necessary, even if it's not uh, to the letter of the contract. So uh, whenever David would call us and say, I need you for this and this client, we would drop everything and join you wherever in, in, in the UK. And if we would have a problem which would cause us to not being able to service the client well and David could solve it, he would. 
And so the entire team at, at, at Lloyd's Banking Group did that. So, so from our point of view, it's ambassadors, it's, it's leadership, and it's real commitment to you know, getting the innovation uh, to get this impact. Yeah, I, I think the only thing I'd add to that is when you look at things like the built environment, even within a, a single company, there's loads of different stakeholders with different disciplines. So I think what we found, a lot of tools and partnerships focus on a particular user group. So they could be, you know, a sustainability expert goes, absolutely, I love this, I get it. But then you go and speak to a treasurer and a finance director and they just don't get it. So so what was really, I think the impact of the tool was really good is we can show it to a CFO, a chief financial officer, and we can show it to a, a CSO and they will get it. But the beauty of it, what it was doing was helping facilitate those conversations because they speak completely different languages at times, even now. I think reflecting on the partnership, though, you know, Lloyd's, as you sort of alluded to, is a big organisation. And what the partnership really taught me, actually, is about it's important to be empathetic in these situations and recognise the different scales and different objectives. So sometimes it can be quite easy for you know large corporates to say, you know, this is what we need and this is how it needs to look. And I think actually we've had really open dialogue and empathy, but also it needs to be an ongoing dialogue. You know, we've faced in the five years here, policies have come in and out, different things have gone up and down the agenda. But having that constant dialogue and also continuing to innovate, I think, is, is helped us stay, stay on the course and, you know, recontract. Because initially we signed up for three years uh, and we recontracted again, which is proof. But you've got to keep things fresh, I think, uh, and reflective of the external environment. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So so the relevance of the tool in, in this sense is that it allows uh, uh, laymen and experts alike to use only four data points on a building and start uh, assessing the business case for improvement, uh, show your carbon emission, show your EPC and show your risk. For owners, risk is as important as for a bank. You need to start spending money now or you will you will lose your investment. The second thing was that the tool, when you add more information, it actually provides you with 90% accuracy of the business case, which would you, you would normally have to wait for for, for months and, and spend uh, thousands per building. And the bank is able to provide you with a better financing solution at a lower cost to you because they just know better what they're financing. Yeah, and I think just reflect on the impact as well and going back to the journey. So we had the pilot stage, we had the exclusive stage, but then we had a non-exclusive stage. And I think full circle in terms of the relationship, a bit like our introduction where ING um, kindly introduced us and put us together and match made what's been really great is you know playing that role with CFP as well because actually impact can be about your own business it can be about your own balance sheet but for us actually it's about the whole UK it's not just about our balance sheet so uh, I think seeing the growth of CFP not just in the UK uh, but also in other other jurisdictions has been a really awesome uh, impact uh, to observe but also play like a tiny part in. Oh, so, so, so this is this is a thing that I'm really proud of. Uh, we were introduced uh, to the UK uh, uh, by another bank, and David has introduced us to Australia, where we now service a Commonwealth Bank. Uh, from Commonwealth Bank, we're now working for several banks in in Australia and in Singapore and in Canada, uh, as well as uh, uh, over 15 banks in in Europe. So, uh, coming from a couple of thousands of buildings per year. Uh, uh, adding up to 30,000 buildings somewhere uh, 10 years ago. Now we assess 3.5 million buildings every year. 
We've helped issue 15 green bonds worth over 15 billion euros or pounds, I should say. Uh, so the leadership of, of David and, and the team at Lloyd's uh, were leveraged for us to, to roll out in 26 countries. Uh, so I think it speaks uh, both for, for courage uh, to share the leadership, but also for the, for the courage to start up an innovation that is not proven yet. Well, those are some absolutely mind-blowing numbers. They're super impressive stuff. And I'd love to talk some more, but we are almost out of time for this section of the podcast. I do think, though, that it's good to end on that note of future-proofing, keeping your relationship fresh and always thinking big and supporting one another in the next steps, um, which are probably good ingredients for people on Valentine's Day as well as in corporate sustainability. So thank you both so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Huge thanks once again to Bram and David for their time. It's now time to go into a super quick break. Join us after the jingle for two more new and exclusive guest interviews, again, loosely yet expertly themed for February. You are listening to the Sustainability Uncovered podcast and you've just heard our interview with Lloyds Bank. Edie's delighted to be partnering with Lloyds Bank on the journey to creating a more sustainable and inclusive future for people and businesses aligned to a just transition. Lloyds Bank actively seeks out opportunities to support their corporate and institutional clients to finance and deliver a just net zero transition, benefiting companies, communities and the wider economy. To find out more, search Lloyds Bank Just Transition. Lending is subject to status. Yes, hello and welcome back to Sustainability Uncovered from Edie, the show for anyone and everyone working in or passionate about sustainability and climate action. It's a Valentine special and what would a Valentine be without a red rose? Well, this is something that Bloom and Wild want us to consider. They're a B Corp certified online flower delivery company that is innovating its customer experience in the name of sustainability. In a really big move, the business does not sell red roses on Valentine's Day because it creates a huge demand spike and therefore risking a big waste spike as well. Apparently, the UK imports some 570 million tonnes of red roses every February. So here to talk us through how to balance consumer expectations, choice editing and innovation is Zipper Kroll, Director of Sustainability at Bloom and Wild. So what would a podcast on Valentine's Day be without mention of flowers? To help me dive into some of the sustainability challenges facing the flower sector and how businesses are innovating to solve them, um, I have on the line with me Sibir, who is the Director of Sustainability at Bloom and Wild, as we'll have just mentioned in the studio. So thank you so much for your time. How are you doing? Thanks for having me, Sarah. I'm well, thanks. Yeah, thank you for sparing the time. I know it's a super busy time professionally and personally for you, and I'm sure that Valentine's Day is crazy for the business in general. Yep. Yeah, it's one of the big peaks we have every year, but it's also uh, really a fun time, actually, to work together with the team and to get uh, to get a great achievement done with the company. I can imagine. So I'd love to dive into all things sustainability at Bloom and Wild. But before we do, I think it probably bears introducing the brand and your role to to our listeners. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, I'm the director of sustainability for Bloom and Wild Group. We are a group of three brands. So we have Bloom and Wild, which originated in the UK. We have Bloomon, which is a Dutch uh, brand by origin, and Bergamot in France. And they're similar companies in the sense that they all sell online uh, flowers and plants and other types of gifts. And we operate in eight different markets across uh, Europe. 
Great. Thanks for the introduction. And I noticed that there are some things that really set these these brands aside from competitors in terms of sustainability. The brand was actually brought to my attention around Valentine's Day in that it does not sell red roses on sustainability grounds. So it'd be great to hear a little bit more about when and why that decision was taken and how that's gone down with customers. Yeah, I think actually it's um, it's a really positive story, I believe. So we looked into red roses because, of course, they are the quintessential Valentine's product and gift. Um, and yet at the same time, we saw that there wasn't even always that predictable a demand for it. And it actually led us down a path where we wanted to look into red roses as a gift and to see if they were as suitable of gifts as people think they are. And we did this because of two reasons. So on the one hand, as Bloom Wild Group, we're quite obsessed with running our business in a sustainable way as possible. And one of the big things that's really an important topic for us is reducing waste because the flower sector can have quite a big waste problem. Some traditional flower sector players can have as much as 30, 40% waste, whereas we consistently sit below 10 and we want to aim towards 5% waste at most. And so we have lots of different ways to drive down that waste. But when you look at certain peaks, particularly around Valentine's, and you source one particular product like red roses in a very big quantity, then you actually start to do run into all kinds of waste issues because there's a big ramp up, which means that production is very much focused towards one uh, peak uh, period, which uh, brings its own logistical challenges. And also because there's such a steep drop off afterwards, it's very hard to still find a good purpose for these types of stems. What was also interesting is that we started asking our customers, what do they really want? What do they really value? And we actually found that although a bouquet of flowers in and of itself was one of the most appreciated Valentine's gifts, actually red roses were one of the least appreciated gifts, which we found a very interesting finding. And uh, it, it actually made sense when we dig, dig into it with people. When we asked them why, it, it often felt like it was a bit of a cliche. People don't like cliches. What we also found is that people felt that it was almost always going to be sort of a last minute grab that people took with them from the supermarket or ordered online because it's kind of a and yeah a less inspired choice that people could make. And so what we found is that people actually much more appreciate a bouquet of flowers that is very personal to them and it has a more personalized story. So if you know somebody loves sunflowers, for example, or tulips or another type of flower that means something to them or that you know maybe matches their interior or that you come up with some kind of a reason that you know will appreciate uh, is actually a much more valued and appreciated gift. And, and that really also goes to the heart of Bloom and Wild where Care Wildly has been our, our motto from the start. So we really like it also when people use the, the power of flowers to, to make connections and to engage with people that they do it in as thoughtful a way as possible. And so we saw a, a really nice win-win to actually say, you know what, for us, we, we don't want to do red roses around Valentine's. We want to try and inspire people to be a bit more creative and in the process actually continue to uphold our own commitment to reduce waste as much as we can in the spirit of being a sustainable company. That's so interesting to hear and I'm sure we can talk a bit more about like the communications piece and positioning these kind of of products but I wanted to talk as you say about how this fits into wider measures to cut waste and cut carbon. I'm aware that you also do bouquets called lovely leftovers and bouquets that can actually be replanted. So strategically, how are you looking at cutting waste? And does this also have an impact on emissions? I'm presuming it would. Absolutely. Yes, we see, of course, one of the 
quick wins you can have is just avoiding waste. Also, whether you're talking about uh, reducing your carbon footprints, but also all the other types of negative externalities that you otherwise could have. And so we go about, yeah, running a, a sustainable company in lots of different ways. Uh, one of them is that we're we're very precise in our forecasting. So we use a lot of tech uh, as an online business to know what trends look like, what kind of volumes we can expect. And also, if we do see that there are, for example, some risks of having a little bit of an excess stock in one place or maybe a, um, a shortage in another, that we have dynamic trading opportunities to make sure that we actually optimize for that and that we therefore have very good forecasting and also um, dynamic trading to minimize waste as we offer uh, products on our website. What we also do is that we, we really like having a, a very short supply chain, so the, the flower sector can be quite protected. Uh, there can be a lot of traders in between the grower and the final retailer, whereas we very often buy everything directly from uh, the grower, which means that we have a fresher product, a quicker delivery, and therefore also less waste because of breakage or, or quality issues. And um, aside from buying everything as fresh as we can, we also look at other activities to further reduce waste. So we have eco sales, for example, and we look at offering certain products that can help us reduce waste as well. So you've mentioned the, the lovely leftovers. It's a product we're quite proud of. We're quite excited to offer it. It's a really good value for money opportunity that comes online once a week where we look at what excess stems do we have and how can we make that still a really nice bouquet that people can organize in their own way to, uh, to spruce up their home. And uh, I think a similar model that we also have is a, is a TLC kit for plants where we sell a lot of plants. Uh, sometimes plants come our way that don't look as pretty as they uh, ought to look as you look at the pictures on our website, but we don't want to discard them. So what we do is we create packages of them and we give people um, some, some tools, some pruning kits so that they can actually give them some tender love and care. So we see it as something that we can do upfront throughout our sourcing process, but also in collaboration with our customers to minimize waste as much as we can. And, um, and I think that's, yeah, that's part of our commitment to uh, work towards net zero. So making sure that we reduce our emissions year on year and that we also offset what we cannot fully eliminate yet with, uh, with credible third parties who validate that approach. And uh, the way that we do that is by looking at STEM level data. So we've created a, uh, a BMS system, a bouquet management system, and within that, we have a carbon footprint score based on a, a life cycle assessment that uh, is bespoke to a specific flower stem. So we know where the flowers come from, how they've been grown, and therefore also what type of a carbon footprint is attached to them. And we use that to create carbon budgets so that our designers and our styling teams can work year on year on bringing down the footprint of our, of our bouquets overall by making increasingly sustainable choices. And um, that, of course, also goes beyond just choosing a sustainable product over another. We also like to work with suppliers to see how they can become more sustainable, uh, whether it's, for example, greenhouses in northern Europe that switch from natural gas heated power towards uh, geothermal energy or working with growers from further afield, particularly in Kenya. We have quite a lot of suppliers. And already flying in a flower can be much more sustainable than growing it in a heated greenhouse. But what we're currently trialing and actually seeing quite a lot of uh, successes with is uh, shipping in flowers via sea freight, which again further reduces their footprint by about 90%. Even though we already see that a, uh, a rose, for example, that's flown in has a, a four to five times lower carbon footprint than one that's grown in a heated greenhouse. And so by 
working with this data, but also working with suppliers to see how we can adopt new ways of, uh, of growing the products. We, uh, we, we really see a lot of ways that we can further reduce our impact and, and head towards net zero. Yeah, it sounds like there's a lot of really complex trade-offs and life cycle analysis going on beyond behind the scenes. And I really do like the BMS not being a building energy management system, which is what I usually um, hear it referring to. So I'd love to hear about how you choose to communicate all of that work to customers, because as you mentioned, there's a lot of data there. There's a lot of information. How do you, you choose the appropriate amount to get across to customers and how do you work to make things like leftovers uh, a sort of sexy gift yeah that's a great question i think maybe up front also good to to talk about the fact that it's it's really important to make sure that you bring everybody along for the journey um, and i don't mean just customers but also internally within the company uh, i think we've we've spent a lot of time over the last one or two years to really make sure that everybody feels that Sustainability is not just the activity of the sustainability team. Sustainability is really everybody's business. Uh, and so when you look at the example around Red Roses, that's the, the brand team working together, the buying team working together, the sustainability team working together to jointly figure out what's what's the move here, what's the right thing to do, and how does that help us, and how do we communicate it and, and make that work. Um, I think when we then yeah lock our sights into something, when we when we get going, what we noticed is that it really helps to talk about sustainability at different levels. So we talk about what we do at a group level or at a brand level, how we focus on certain specific themes that are a part of our sustainability compass, where we've identified a couple of top priority focus areas for us that we've identified together with NGOs, academia, with other types of stakeholders who helped us inform our sustainability strategy. Um, and sort of yeah, working down from that, we, we ultimately also communicate a lot at the product level because we often see that that can be the most evocative message when you talk about a, a TLC kit or when you talk about a lovely leftovers bouquet or a organic bouquet that we've launched in the UK last year and that we've had in the Netherlands for a few years now running. And so these are, are kind of messages that we see that land best if we dovetail them and bring them about in different ways. Um, we also flex our style depending on, on the channel and, and the space that we have. So, you know, when it comes to short to the point messages, uh, we can put the B Corp logo on, on as many places as possible, our website footer, the bottom of email newsletters on packaging. Um, and that's quite a clear message for people who are familiar with this. And it's also validated by an external party, by B Lab. So in that sense, it's, it's instantly also a more credible message than something you define yourself. Uh, but where we have more space for storytelling, like um, social media platforms or other types of channels like that, there we like to include longer form content about our initiatives and approaches. Yeah, I realised that that was a super broad question about comms, but I love the point you make that good internal comms is the foundation for getting the messaging right as you go outside. Um, and I'm sure we could talk about any of those campaigns in a lot more detail, but I'm afraid we're nearly out of time. So thank you so much for hopping on our podcast today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yes, huge thank you once more to Bloom and Wild for hopping on the podcast this episode. Time is flying by, but I do have to keep it flying because I'm I'm not I'm not trying to point fingers, but Matt did go over on his news in brief. So there was a lot of news. It's the news's fault, if anything. It is the news's fault. That's that's my motto. Um, we'll move swiftly on to our third and final guest speaker for this episode, and this interview is about a hot topic: literally low carbon heating. 
this wasn't in the news in brief, but if you're in the UK, you'll have really been hard pressed to have avoided news of ministers infighting and misinformation spreading about heat pumps and heat networks in recent months. And it seems to have intensified even in the past few weeks. You could say it was a heated debate. It was a heated debate. Excellent. We love we love a pun. Um, to help us cut through the noise and demystify heat pumps and heat networks, two options for warming your cold, cold heart a little more sustainably, I spoke to Shana Karu, Regional Director for Energy Services, Buildings and Places at ACOM, and his team were a key part of efforts to add first-of-their-kind heat networks to London and to other urban areas across the UK. So let's hear that interview in full. Yes, so for this next part of the podcast, it's great to talk about a very hot topic, and I mean that quite literally, um, and to explore low carbon heating innovations and strategy in the UK with Chana from the Energy Services Buildings and Places team at ACOM. So thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me, Sarah. Thanks for hopping on. I think most of our listeners will probably know a little bit about ACOM, but it would be great to start with an introduction to its work on decarbonising heating systems and what what your role is in that project. Yeah, absolutely. So ACOM being a a global infrastructure consultancy firm, uh, really we specialise on a number of different topics and and I happen to sit in the business that's sort of around buildings and places. And, And of course, we can't these days but be conscious of the need to ensure that we mitigate our impact on the climate as much as possible. So within that context, designing really efficient, low carbon solutions is is key to what we do. And here at ACOM, that's no different. You know, partly decarbonisation can be tackled through a number of different ways. But one thing that we're specialising at the moment is the concept of heat networks. Um, Heat networks essentially enables you to harness the power of otherwise wasted sources of heat. So heat from the tube or heat from a data center or heat from a glass blowing factory down the road. And it enables you to take that heat, which is essentially otherwise going to be vented into the atmosphere and using heat pumps, uh, put it into people's homes and businesses and, you know, provide them with something that doesn't come from natural gas. You know, we call it decentralized energy because rather than getting your energy from a power station that's out somewhere else, these are about community energy projects, building local energy centers for those local communities. And it and it really enables you to reach out and get and, and harness, I suppose, those economies of scale. Because, you know, us as, as let's say, a, a homeowner, you, you couldn't possibly hope to you know, take the heat out of the tube, it it just wouldn't be commercially viable. But if, you know, thousands of people got together and and combined their efforts, then then that would work. Um, And we would be able to harness those those otherwise wasted sources of heat. And that really is um, a big drive in the UK at the moment uh, to help us decarbonise heat. Um, We see heat networks currently at about 3% of uh, our UK-wide energy solution, and it should be around about 20%. And it's it's all of our really hard to decarbonize areas. You know, it's our really dense cities and towns and, you know, higher education estates. There are around about 14,000 heat networks already in the UK, but there couldn't be a lot more. Of course. And you've mentioned some things there like economies of scale and people with things like heat pumps, which get fitted to individual estates often ask, is this suitable for all buildings? So for a heat network, I'm assuming, as you say, it's a town or a city, but is there any other consideration about what kind of buildings these are 
suitable for maybe listed buildings or less energy efficient buildings? Would they be a concern or are they suitable for heat networking? The answer to that is yes, they would be a concern, but they are they can also be made suitable for connection to heat network, um, to heat networks rather. So, f- for example, I'm working very closely with the Houses of Parliament, who are who are you know really looking to decarbonise their entire estate. It does mean that there are some technical issues around that. So, with listed buildings, they often are drafty and very inefficient and operate at really high temperatures. So. They're not naturally aligned to a decarbonized heat solution, but heat pump technology has come on leaps and bounds since I first got in, you know, involved in the industry. And, and nowadays we can achieve some of those high temperatures. I mean, you know, you kind of lose a little bit of efficiency when you, you in doing so, but it's it's absolutely achievable. And actually, it, it can it can work uh, massively to those buildings benefit. Um, it means that there's less space required within their estate for, you know, massive boiler plant, uh, because all of that's taken care of somewhere else. So it can it can really help as well as uh, be a challenge. There are places where heat networks aren't really appropriate. So the less dense the setting, the less dense what we call the heat load, uh, the harder it is to make it financially viable. Because at the end of the day, we're talking about large infrastructure projects which we need to decarbonize and actually i think even without the decarbonization picture um heat networks make sense on on a lot of different fronts it it gives you a a sort of um a source of energy that's disassociated from natural gas um and fossil fuels um which helps with energy price fluctuations it means that you're very efficient because you're using otherwise wasted sources of energy and it can help to lower lower some of those costs that that consumers see. So the modern heat network in the UK is actually geared around two things. One is decarbonizing heat, and the other one is having viable, financially sensible um, solutions that a business can invest in. Well, from what you're saying, it sounds like heat networks can be a win-win, but you also mentioned that they're nowhere near at the scale that we need and we're trying to get to that 20% of homes mark. So what have been the big challenges to scaling heat networks in the UK to date? Well, it's a, that's a really interesting question. So places like Copenhagen, uh, Stockholm, they're something like 90-odd percent heat networks, you know, and they've been, they, they went down the heat network route in the 60s, whereas we went down... Uh, the fossil fuel sort of natural gas route, town gas, otherwise called. Um, And at the time, that was a sensible thing for us to do, and it was a sensible thing for them to do. So really, the the, the main reason we don't have these big heat networks is that we chose to invest instead um, in something else. And that something else has done us us well. It's seen a lot of growth, Uh, but it's time to modernize, you know, in certain parts of the country, and, and heat networks can help achieve that. To roll them out at scale, however, you need, I mean, to me, you need a couple of things. You need the right market conditions um, and you need legislation that protect consumers. So I don't know if if you track this, but the Energy Act was passed um, late last year, got royal assent late last year. And part of that was um, the sort of move, the journey towards uh, heat network zoning. And the government's actually currently running some consultation on heat network zoning, and I encourage people who are listening to to review that. Um, Essentially, that does two things. 
that piece of legislation did two things. It appointed Ofgem as the regulator for heat. So Ofgem regulate gas and electricity, and now they also regulate heat. So it basically brings heat into the mainstream alongside those other two utilities. We as homeowners, we're used to having our gas supply and our electricity supply, but there's no reason why we couldn't also have a hot water supply. It's just energy after all, um, and low carbon energy. So with Ofgem taking on that regulator role, that really protects consumers and it really should give uh, people confidence that actually this is something that is not a flash in the pan. It's 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 a tried and tested uh, solution that can help us achieve certain objectives. The other thing that the the legislation is taking us towards is is as I mentioned, heat network zoning. Um, and this is this sort of I guess journey towards a, a future where we can have designated heat network zones. Um, and there's a lot of information available on this on, uh, online um, from the government as well. But essentially, that would would say in a particular area, a city, for example, it would designate a zone and would say if there is a heat network in this area, um, you can connect to it, or you should connect to it, or you must connect to it. Depends on how you know who who those building owners are, and that in effect allows investors, it allows uh, developers to come in and say with confidence, well, I can invest in that because I know I have a guaranteed source of um, of income. I have, a, I have a guaranteed customer base. Yeah, that all makes sense. And something else I wanted to talk about was like the people part of this. So, for example, mm. when we saw the Green Homes Grant, the pinch was actually the supply chains and the skilled workers. So is scaling heat networks an opportunity um, opportunity there and how can we make sure that we've got the right materials and people in place at the right time as well yeah i mean it, it is actually a serious challenge in the uk i mean we're talking about scaling up um from three percent to twenty percent in the next however many years you know that's not a lot of time we've we've got to address this climate um this climate emergency um so the supply chain needs to be addressed and the government i, I mean the department of energy's um security and net zero are are looking at this um it, it, it there's there's multiple strands to it essentially there, there there needs to be a bigger manufacturing base there already is a fairly decent sized uh, market in the uk it's it's very buoyant um and also it's uh, it needs skilled workers so we at acom are rapidly hiring and training and developing our engineers to take this on and I think other firms are probably doing the same um, in terms of the supply chain itself. You know, we're working, for example, one of our projects, which is um, it was in the news recently, actually taking energy from a major new data center in West London feeding. And that data center alone would feed 9000 new homes with low carbon energy. And that's a project we've developed from from the outset. And now we're, we've, we're at the point where we're going to market to, to bring in a development partner. Um, that supply chain is there because those opportunities are there. Now, there's a lot of skill in um, in, in the Scandinavian nations. There's a lot of uh, skills in, in mainland Europe. And there are some skills being developed here and certainly manufacturing facilities as well. Um, so, so I don't know if I've quite answered your question. It is a challenge. It is also a massive opportunity. And it's one that we need to rise to. I deliberately asked a challenging question. Um, I'm sure that if we knew how to plan it, it would all be done already. Absolutely. Yeah, um, absolutely. But super exciting stuff on the horizon for Heat Network. So thank you so much for your time and for sharing all those insights. Absolutely. No problem, Sarah. It's been a pleasure.
And with that, those are our three interviews. So Matt, I have to ask, are you now a bit warmer on the topic of Valentine's Day? No. No. There's no convincing some people. Oh, no, I, th I think what we heard from, <clears throat> especially in some of those interviews, were very much people bucking the trend for good reasons. But I think Valentine's Day as this entity is still more people need to do what we've heard from some of the organisations today, I think, for it to really start to fan the dying embers of my heart. <laughs> Fabulous. Um, before I close off this podcast, I do want to extend a final big thank you to all of our speakers. And at the very beginning of this podcast, Matt said that it's been a super busy time for us. So I'm going to run down some key ED dates for your diary. So all of March is Business Leadership Month. So this is a real uh, jewel in the crown of our calendar. Every weekday we'll be publishing exclusive multimedia content on ED.net, all designed to inform and inspire you to go further and faster in your environmental and social sustainability work. And there are a few key markers during the month. We will have three back-to-back -back webinars on purpose-led business, green skills and emissions data on March the 5th, and those are free to attend. You can find out more and register to attend by visiting ed.net, then clicking events, then clicking masterclasses and webinars. And then a reminder that we do exist outside of the digital world. On March the 20th and 21st, we have our biggest face-to-face -face event of the year, ED24 in central London. We are quickly heading towards a sellout, so we're expecting to convene more than 700 people, business and environmental leaders alike, for two days of networking, debates, insight and co-creation. Full details on the event, including ticket prices and a full agenda, are at event.ed.net slash forum. We hope to see you there, but for today's episode, that is just about everything. So it's a goodbye from Matt. Goodbye. And a goodbye from me. Goodbye. <laughs>